0: Without further ado, then, we can go into tonight's study. So 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 15 to 22 is going to be our focus for tonight. And you already know that we're going to be looking at these scriptures through the lenses of what it means to present the gospel. Okay? So let's read the first three verses from verse 15 to verse 17. Edenike? okay.
1: But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil.
0: Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you so much. Okay. So the, the verse obviously begins with a but. So it's good to backtrack just for a second, right? He's saying that, he said in verse 14, that if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. This is what we mentioned just now, right? That godly character is so necessary to the Christian life that Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter, that it is better to suffer, to maintain godly character than the alternative. That even if godly character leads you down the path of suffering, which it was practically doing for these Christians, that it is completely worth it because character is such an integral element of God's calling of believers. It's the only way that the world can see God eventually. Remember what 1 John 4, verse 12 says, that No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God. And so the only way we can know that you have seen God is if you love the brethren. If we we should see a different texture of love and life from you, right, that will point to the creator himself. So he said, rather than being afraid of the suffering, rather than allowing the suffering, the persecution to melt your heart, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. I like um, how some other translations expand on this. If we read the ESV for a moment, um, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So this is a bit of an expanding on what it means to sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. So what's your take on this verse? Because we're going to come to the second part of it, right? Which is where our main focus for tonight lies. But what does this look like in practice? What is this saying for us to do? Sanctify the Lord in your hearts, or honor Christ the Lord as holy, in the context that we have looked at.
2: Yeah, so I I feel, um, you know, to honor Christ in our hearts, you know, um, as holy, one practical way I could Try to express this is in terms of upholding his doctrine, upholding okay. his command, which he has taught us. Okay, day to day life. Because I, I see it in two perspectives. So one form is if we claim to, you know, be followers of Christ to be his disciples. And then his doctrine, which is his lifestyle, which he has taught us, is not evident in our life. We are not able to be faithful witnesses to the world around us. Mm-hmm. Then on the other hand, too, um, by living, you know, by honoring his doctrine and, you know, showing it forth in our daily work and in our daily life, it's, it's, uh, it's a, like the scripture there says, is to make a defense to anyone that asks us, you know, the reason, so when people ask us the basis on which we are, you know, showing that fruit of evidence, it's also like a vehicle of witnessing, you know, because mm-hmm. in the world today it is pointless, it is literally pointless, humanly speaking, to live such a righteous life. So when people try to understand the basis on which we have such, you know, if faithful evidence or witness, then use it as an opportunity to share with them.
0: Okay. Yeah, thank you. We're going to come to that second part of um, being ready to give a defense. Um, But thank you for the answer. Even though I feel like what you're saying was more about how we live right and the emphasis of this first half is about your heart right it's telling you that something needs to happen in your heart first and if it's as though if that thing doesn't happen in your heart then the outward expressions right such as living godly and giving a defense or even being ready to give a defense will not happen um hudi your hand was up did you want do you want to go
3: Yeah, I think it um, speaks to
1: you know when we go through difficult or hard situations, judging God as just and as mm-hmm. right—that's that's that's basically what. Since we are sanctifying the Lord, we are not um, um, looking at God to be unfaithful or unjust yeah. in His dealings yeah. also with the things that we go through.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a good one, right? And that's practically what the word sanctify means. It means to set apart, that let, let God not be like anything else in your life. I think it's closer to what Samuel was saying about upholding the doctrine of Christ, right? But more in your heart as a, as a foundation. Let nothing be comparable to Christ, right? Let no philosophy, let no trend be at the same level as the voice of Jesus as the person of Jesus in your heart. And if that is the case, then it means that you're going to make him your first fear or your first audience. In fact, you're going to make him your only fear. If that is the case, it means you're going to lose the fear of man because we're going to talk about presenting the gospel, right? And you're going to, if you've tried to do it before to complete strangers, you're going to find out that one of the main obstacles is the fear of man. But the apostle is saying, right, sanctify Jesus, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, set him apart in your heart as holy. Let him be the only one worthy of your fear, right? Let him be the one who is your audience. Let him be your point of reference. Essentially, don't live your life without pointing back to him. And let it begin in your heart. You see, this is necessary because It's only when your heart is right that you can begin to reason about the gospel because he's going to talk about the reasoning aspect, right? And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. You might be a Christian, but if your heart is not right, (laughs) when they ask you about the hope that is in you, your answer might be quite funny. You might tell them that even you, you are not sure. (laughs) You are not certain of the hope that is in you. And it's not because you're not certain. It's because circumstances, situations, current affairs have moved your heart. So your heart, my heart needs to be right first. And that's why when God is dealing with us, it's not our intellect that he's after primarily. God doesn't care that you don't, or let me not say he doesn't care. God is not too concerned that you don't understand everything with your with your mind. Of course he would like it if you did, but you have natural limitations that prevent you from understanding any everything with your mind anyways. So God is not so concerned that you don't necessarily understand with your intellect, which is why when Jesus called his first apostles, he didn't call the most learned, right? He didn't call the high class of society he called fishermen, people who couldn't even speak Greek, which was the language of the day or at least the high class language of the day or even whatever it is that they were speaking at that time. Because your your ability to intellectually lay hold of it, to intellectually understand it, is always, always secondary to the heart experience. And this is necessary, right? Because when you're reasoning with someone about the faith, you are not trying to win an argument, right? Which you can do. You can actually win the argument because... Christianity is intellectually plausible, right? It's intellectually verifiable. It, it, it holds up intellectually, right? And you can take that approach. But if you have done it before, you will realize that if you are going to win a soul for the Lord, you are going to need to win the, soul, the heart of the soul. And so just like Peter said to us throughout this letter, the place to begin in that enterprise is with your own heart set the Lord apart as holy? Is is the Lord your only fear? Have you arrived at the place of such a consciousness of who the Lord is, right? Of the worth of his sacrifice, that taking the step of faith, because that's what it is, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to to reason with someone, to even defend your faith, is not... So much of a stress. It's something that you gladly do when the opportunity presents itself. If you cannot honestly say that you are at that point, then you need to labor, labor to sanctify your heart before God and let Him always be your first audience. Let Him be your reference. Let Him be your only fear.
3: Okay? Any extra thoughts to that before we move on? Okay, Udi says this is
0: absolutely profound. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. And then he now says further that always be ready. So let's stop there for a second. Always be ready. Always be ready. You know, in our Pentecostal and charismatic circles, one of the things that we have, which is good, um, and that we have going for us is that we are always open to the spontaneity of the spirit, right? We are aware that God moves in sovereign ways. So we are very good at not planning everything. We are very good at not preparing everything because like Jesus promises, the spirit of your father will speak through you, right? And um, yeah, God is faithful. He always does that. He always speaks through us. However, in this business of defending the faith, because what we're going to see here is that there is there is almost like an attack on your faith, as it were, or at least there is a question on your faith. And God is not saying be quiet, except if in the moment he says be quiet. It's almost like you, you have a certain lifestyle that provokes questions from your colleagues. They want to know what's the reason for the hope that is in you. That's an opportunity. And you see, it's when that moment comes that you're going to realize whether you're ready or not. I remember when I first moved to Germany, for example. And then I stayed back for Friday beers. That's what they call it at the office, right? The very first weekend. So Friday beers is like cool off after a long week uh, with, with some beer and all of that. Um, and, and so the guy who gave me my apartment, he used to work at the same company he was living and we are kind of bidding in farewell. He came and offered me Uh, many bottles of beer and he was like oh let's let's celebrate i was like ah yeah of course let's celebrate but i don't drink alcohol it's like oh (laughs) really i was like are you muslim i'm like no i'm not muslim um actually i'm a christian and then he was like if you're a christian of course (laughs) you should drink alcohol um because you know like in the west here where we are um christians drink alcohol and it's not a sin for them to do that what is wrong is to get drunk but i don't drink alcohol and in our much more conservative um african setup we don't but it's not wrong in god's eyes to drink alcohol just to say Um, so he, that was his question and then it was at that moment i realized i was not prepared because there was a mixture of shyness plus I don't know if to even call it shame or whatever, or just I don't want to ruin this party. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just a personal choice, you know. And then that conversation went. So that was when um, that was March two thousand and nineteen. So that was four years ago, and I haven't seen that guy till this day. You know. So God is hoping that when those moments come, you and I will be prepared. We'll be prepared to reason, right, about the faith. We'll be be prepared to at least start a conversation. And if we start the conversation, to stay in the conversation and to be able to bring it to an end successfully. These are the three things you need when sharing the gospel, right? The ability to start a conversation, the ability to stay in the conversation, because if if you have some experience, you know that sometimes you start a conversation and then one or two questions get thrown at you. And then you, you, you wrap up very quickly. Or maybe you even survive the questions. You, you wriggle your way out of it. But then how do you conclude? You know, How do you make this a productive conversation at the end? Um, do you try to force them to say a sinner's prayer? And if you don't say it, you think that you are a failure or, or whatnot? Um, those are the three main questions of sharing the gospel right and the point Peter is making is that you have to be prepared and that's what this bible study is about reasoning about the faith requires the preparation right so if I may ask um in what context have you found yourself sharing or have you found opportunities opening up to share the gospel and what was your challenge in that context Or maybe you can just speak into what your main challenge was. I've spoken about three main things that you need to answer when sharing the gospel, which is how do I start the conversation, right? Or second one is how do I stay in the conversation? Third one is um, how do I bring it to a fruitful end? Because you have to end it. You don't have to leave it um, open-ended, right? Because you may not see the person again. So who would like to go? What do you think? Or what's your experience?
1: So so for me,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Charlie, I mean, I completely relate with um your experience, especially with the fact that you're um in a different terrain, right? You're not in like the African space where everyone mm-hmm. has that pointer sort of to, you know, that's um supernatural being who is God. You know, we've grown up in an environment where Church is normal, right? Everybody goes to church. You know that there's a God and all of that. So I, I believe that for me, the it's a mix of everything, how to start the conversation. Um, because, you know, you find people who um, just see life as it is, right? So you're trying <laughs> to have an opportunity to pitch in that you were made for something more or there's something more to life than just you know, going to work, eating, sleeping, and waking up, and all of that. So I feel that like for me, it has been a, a a blend of both. You have people okay. who are getting occultic stuff. That it's 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 almost as though you're like, if I start, can I mm. can I get to the end and you know not make it worse, <laughs> right? Because you feel like, oh, mm. this opportunity that you have to talk about Christ with these people will leave a lasting impression that may be difficult to unravel or be, be difficult to change if you don't go about it the right way. So so I, I don't think it's a one, one size fits of how to start or how to continue or how to end. For me, it has been a, a mix of, of everything.
0: Okay, yeah, thank you for your input. So it means as we progress in the study, we'll call on you for some tips, right? When we get to some of those hard questions. Um thank you, UD. Okay. Does someone else want to share in what context do you find yourself needing to share the gospel or what context do you find the opportunities opening up? And what are the biggest challenges in those contexts?
3: Um, mm-hmm. my context is um
2: mostly about keeping keeping it going because okay. the challenge for me most of the time. You are
0: breaking up a little bit, Sammy. Could you start again? Sorry.
2: Is it clear enough?
0: I think so, yeah.,
2: OK, so my context, my own um, um when I say challenge is mostly in keeping the conversation going because most of the time, um the limitation is time. So the context in which I'm meeting these people is mostly like I'm in motion. Most I think it's mostly because of my current uh, situation or where I where I find myself. So mm-hmm. I, these conversations tend to start up on the go.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: eventually, what happens is uh, um, I am not able to complete it. Maybe I spark up the conversation with the, the cab driver or with somebody on the train, or then. The person has to get off soon or I have to get off soon. Uh, so it's usually that's a um, In some, also, I think another issue is some time is also how to start, which is mostly due to context as well. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: It's like something you did said is that uh, in my own case, it's not as if I don't want to or, or maybe I don't know how, but I say, it's, it's like, you know, it's just like you you're, you meet somebody and you want to talk about football out of the blues. You just start talking about football, and there's nothing about football that is in the conversation. Then you look old. You look like you're trying mm-hmm. to push. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's a mixture of those two. But usually, if I if I scale those two, usually ending it is not um, like how to come to the conclusion is not always
0: the major challenge, those are the major students. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you, Sammy. Um. By the way, at the end of this, we'll just share one or two testimonies, right, of successful encounters that we've had because I know that we have had successful encounters so that we can be encouraged, but it's good for us to start with the problems, right, because if I don't know about you, but for me, nine out of ten encounters are not productive, at least in my own definition of productive. So, yeah, like the testimonies are there, we, we bless God for them, but let's let's start with where most people are. So that's why we're looking at what are the challenges, what are the things that are not working. Okay. Um, does someone else want to go
3: or should I proceed? Okay. Feel free
0: to write in the chat also. Um, So the the first and most important thing that Paul, or rather, that we can draw out from Peter's charge, right, is he said, always be ready. So we've, we've talked about being ready. You need to be ready. And that's what we're going to do tonight, to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter is taking it for granted that there is a hope that is in you, right, and that you are firmly rooted in that hope. What does it mean to be firmly rooted in the hope that is in you? It means that you are an, um, you have an organic experience of what you're trying to share. Because remember, what you're trying to share when you're sharing your faith is not an intellectual knowledge. Of course, there are intellectual aspects, but if it is just the intellect, then nobody will be saved. right? Because I'm sure you've had great conversations with people that were intellectually stimulating and there was no need for them to turn over their entire lives to Christ right? After those conversations, there was no need for them to move out if they were living in a, in a wrong relationship after those conversations. So what you're introducing to them is a life. It's a life form. It's called eternal life. It's Zoe. It's, it's way. It's not an intellectual topic. It's a spiritual topic. You are born again by the indwelling of the spirit of God in you. That indwelling of the spirit of God in you activates your senses, your spiritual senses, and it's on the basis of that activation that you can know God, right? There's an initial knowing that God gives you. And is that knowing that gives you feelings like the assurance of faith, right? Is that knowing that gives you feelings like the assurance of resurrection. It's a basic knowing. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man is born again, he cannot see. There's a certain plane of thinking. There's a certain plane of relating, of understanding, of feeling that someone who's not born again cannot get to. And anybody who has relentlessly tried to preach to unbelievers will know what I'm talking about. Jesus said, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again because unless a man is born again, he cannot see. The Greek word for see there is I do, which means to perceive. Like the thing is right in front of them, but they cannot lay hold of it. So you're, what you're trying to do is not to give them an intellectual um, juggernaut to go back with. What you're trying to make them come into is a life. It's a, is a, is a knowledge that is supernatural. And so that's something you should have at the back of your mind. And if that is going to happen, you have to be rooted in the hope that is in you so that it doesn't matter what you face. Even if you face the strongest atheist, there's a confidence you have that the thing I have inside of me is the answer to your deepest questions. You may not accept it, but it is still the answer. Even if you have someone who is deep in the occult, you don't second guess what it is that God has given you. Even though it looks simple and foolish, the preaching of the cross looks absurd in the the face of practical devils, right, that are tormenting people or that are deceiving people because Satan's primary weapon is not torment, it's lies, that's his primary weapon, that's the primary instrument that he uses to blind the eyes of people. But you see, if you're grounded in the hope that is in you, and it's not just an intellectual grounding, which is necessary, but an experiential grounding, if you're grounded in that hope, if you are living in the reality of that experience, you will be able to pass it on beyond words. And that's the goal of your preaching. Okay. Um, Now, there is a framework that I think is helpful. I mean, I use it, but not as a framework. I just use it as something I know. There's a framework called Salt that is helpful when you're trying to have conversations. And we're talking about conversations with mostly strangers, but this probably applies towards Um, anybody that you're trying to share the gospel with salt means start a conversation that's the s but of course start a conversation is a dilemma right that's what we're trying to solve here how do you even start a conversation but so i normally just forget about the s because it doesn't really help me but the a says ask questions so asking questions is a great way to 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 start a gospel conversation it's important to ask the right questions Because if you can ask the right questions, you can unlock things, right? The way to think about the exercise of preaching is that the Holy Spirit is willing to move on your words. But the Holy Spirit cannot move on any word and every word, right? So if you can find the right word, as it were, if you can find the right word, then the way you know that you found the right word is that the Holy Spirit will move on it. I need to unlock the heart of the person that you're speaking to. So we cannot underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Peter the first time the gospel was preached to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 32. There was so much that he could have told Cornelius. But then he began on a certain note, right? He began to talk about the news that was published all through Judea and Galilee, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. He began to speak about the anointing without... I mean, why would this start a gospel presentation with the anointing. But you see, what confirmed that he was on the right track was that before he even finished, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So this is a challenge to find the right questions, right? To get started with, to ask the right questions. So that's what the A stands for. The L in salt starts for listening attentively. This is, I cannot overemphasize this because... Satan blinds the eyes of people with lies, right? And they may not even realize that it's lies. But if you listen correctly, you will figure out the lies. You will figure out the half-truths. You will figure out the misconceptions. You will figure out the things that people are missing out. And much more than that, you'll be able to hear what next the Holy Spirit is inviting you to ask. You can hear much more than is being said. You can figure out that, this person needs something deeper than a street conversation or a conversation on the train, right? This person needs X and this other person needs Y. If you listen, listening attentively and listening to the spirit. And the final one is to tell stories, but this is probably for later. Um, the gospel is supposed to be experienced before it is first understood. So it is through the lens of an experience that people understand the gospel. And so, That's why it's important to sanctify Jesus in your heart, to come to that place where your heart is on fire for Jesus. Because then that will be the layer upon which your stories about your own experience will rest and to be able to make a a difference. So the approach I want us to take then is to consider um, two things. The first thing we'll consider is how do you start a conversation by asking questions, right? What what are the kind of questions you can ask to start a conversation? Second thing is, how do you stay in the conversation? And by staying in the conversation, I want us to look at the three main objections to Christianity, right? And these three main objections would quote themselves in different things, depending on your context, but they are always the same thing, right? And then we're going to see how you can conclude the conversation, okay? So back to the floor then, how do you start the conversation? What do you say? um and you can you can depict different scenarios right if you're talking to your siblings or your parents or if you're talking to a stranger on the streets like i do a lot or if you're talking to your classmates who are not strangers but are, are not friends either or you're talking to an acquaintance how do you start
3: what kind of questions do you ask what's your experience <laughs> Okay, um,
2: maybe, let me throw myself out there first. Yeah. Um, so I have, a, I have a very clear um, experience in memory and uh, it was uh, a boss. So there was a, a person I met, a lady I met, and first of all, we, I introduced myself. So actually the scenario was a bit kind of ready because we all rushed in. <clears throat> And there was a context to start the conversation. So I introduced myself and, you know, asked the person, just kind of like that initial pleasantry. And in the process of me asking her to tell me more about herself, you know, she expressed how I could discern, because in my own context, I think discernment helped me to ask the right question. So I discerned a great deal of concern and worry, so I think I then asked her what she's most afraid of like what why, why is fear a big issue and in the process of conversation about fear um, and I mean, we talked about why people are afraid, why fear is a very powerful factor and then I began to um, bringing how um, that the the cure of fear that God's cure of or God's solution for fear for us is peace and then I introduced um, I began mm-hmm. to tell, talk about Jesus as the priest of peace so incidentally she has an understanding of Christianity but you know she doesn't have that personal relationship and as interesting as it was she had never um, come into that had never known that revelation or title of Jesus as the prince of peace you know and that whole conversation of peace was now what led to how you know when you know God has given us peace uh, first of all understanding you know all fear mm-hmm. is that peace deals with fear and so I couldn't end the conversation because of like I said <laughs> time, because the public transport and you get to your stop and you just have to get off. So, and it was a rush hour, so yeah. So that was it for me.
0: But, but that's very good. Um, Yeah, thank you, Sami. Just to say that you may not always get the chance to end the conversation, but I think the most important thing is to sow a powerful seed. And I think this was a powerful seed that you sowed for sure. And if you meet again, it's definitely ground to continue. I really like what you said about discernment. Descending what was the right question, right? Remember the salt framework, ask the right questions, listen attentively and tell, tell stories. Um, yeah, that question of what's your biggest fear, right? Or what are you most afraid of is a very relevant question. Something I want to add on top of this is that part of why this model is very useful is that, at least for me, because, because of the nature of my work and lifetime shadow, I actually really don't have time. Even when I go to preach, I have a very short window, one hour, two hours maximum to do it. So, you know, I don't want to waste my time pursuing lost cause, right? There, because when you're talking, um, there are people whose hearts God has read it and whose hearts those two categories of people is by questions. So um, the person who is whose heart has been softened enough by the reign of God's spirit will be open to questions much more than the person who's not at least answering deep questions. Okay, thank you, Sami. Someone else? How do you start a conversation? What do you ask? Or what do you say? So Sami's context is meeting a random stranger on the bus. So there's a bit of time, but not enough time. Can I say
3: something? Yeah,
0: Yudi?
1: Unfortunately, I don't miss people i don't miss strangers at the bus <laughs> so uh, my, okay. my context would would majorly be co-workers or maybe patients at the clinic or you know that kind of thing um and mm-hmm. over where i am a very good conversation starter would be how was your weekend <laughs> right
3: okay um,
1: what did you do because i mean everyone is always wanting to talk about what they did over the weekend what did you do where did you go did you travel did you you know
3: <laughs>
1: and for me i always mention that oh i went to church on sunday and for me that that always sparks up something oh church are you a christian and then i begin to say oh and she'll say oh my mom used to go to church as or we used to go to church as kids or i used to attend this church i, I mean i've had a, an experience where you know, a co-worker said, oh, in church, the singing is always very good. Or, oh, you know, the food is always very good, you know, those kind of things. So that's, for me, has always, you know, started off something. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it never ends in one conversation. Okay. Because people here maybe a bit more conservative. And I, I, I have the feeling that I don't want to shove everything, especially since they are not... Random strangers, right? These are mm-hmm. people that we'll see tomorrow, right? And then we could begin to talk about fear. We could begin to talk about, you know, you know why why you're afraid or why you're, you know, those kind of things. So, if you're if you're going back to the question, a very good conversation starter for me would be. how is the weekend. Search. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, that's very good, Lidi. Really. I think um, social context are super important for the Christian, right? Um yeah. Thank you, Yudi. Um, does someone else have Quick has something the chat? He said his his um his manager is a Jew and she's always talking Jewish feasts and the Sabbath. Okay, cool. So how does that lead you on? What kind of questions do you ask, Quiko, in light of that? Maybe Kweku is not able to speak because he's in a meeting, but he can write in the chat. But I can give you my most recent experience, which was I went to the top university in Germany, actually, which is because it's here in Berlin to preach. And the moment you step into that university, you can feel it in the spirit, the the haughtiness of men, the the pride of human knowledge is at its apex in that university. So it's the last place you want to preach the gospel, especially to random strangers. But of course, I did so. When I was there, I had only one hour, um, and everybody said, no, we don't want to talk to you, sorry. But thankfully, and one person tried to talk, but he was just going on and on about communism, so I left him. And eventually, towards the end, I found these two young people, a guy and a girl, they were sitting together um, just by the garden. Um, I think it was their lunchtime or something like this, and they were wrapping something to smoke. (laughs) they're obviously doing drugs now the background is that berlin is a city of experience and young people are drawn to the city to experience all kinds of things like the watchword is i want to experience it right whether it is um alternative sexual lifestyles or sexual orientations down to psychedelics or whatever it is experience is the watchword for this generation um so Because of my failed attempts to start a conversation with other people, the Holy Spirit led me to ask this question. I told them that I know that I'm a complete stranger. He don't know me. And I think they're they're both Germans. But if you can, allow me to ask you one question. Just one. (laughs) So I had to pray a lot to figure out what's the right question. So I asked them, have you had any experience that made you think that there might be a God? You know, that the physical creation is not all that there is, you know, or at least phys- physical material life is not all that there is. Have you had any such sort of experience? And whoa, that question opened the floodgates, you know, from not wanting to talk to, to having a very fruitful conversation. Now, I, I didn't lead them to Christ. I didn't attempt to lead them to Christ, actually, it was a deliberate decision, because, well, we don't have time to talk about it now. But the question opened up a lot. And naturally, they asked counter questions and I answered and I pressed home the point. And within 10 minutes, I, I was able to finish the conversation and leave them with a clear decision to make. And um, So I found that question to be quite interesting, right? Because in a city um, that is big on experience, you know, especially among the young people who, who lack a foundation for life, who lack enough experience in life to be able to choose. The question of of have you, and we're talking about a context where people don't know about God. Their idea of church is very broken because of communist East Germany. Berlin was in East Germany. The idea of church was a communist state-run affair, not anything that Jesus Christ recognizes. So the average person's thinking about church is really horrific, Um, and not to even mention about God. So this is a society that is broken completely by its past spiritually and by its present as well. Um, you, can, I, you can say that there's no basis upon which to even relate to the average person when it comes to preaching the gospel. But that's a question about have you had any experience that, that, that made you think that there might be a God? It opened the floodgates and we had a, a good gospel conversation with them. So they went from not knowing anything about God to realizing that they need to make a decision.
3: Okay.
0: So I was saying that to fill up the time for someone else to remember their own experience.
4: Okay. I don't know if I could also yes. Um, yes. Okay. Um for me actually it's it's um in relation to the body of Christ that that's like fellow believers. Um every Monday we normally have like um prayer meeting at church, but Um, right before the prayer meeting sometimes we also talk and then um, study the word before we pray so um and we just finished the church actually just finished like easter all of easter the lent um ash wednesday what else um what's the one again with the palm sunday so all of that and um I think that also help um was a good introduction as well on that day. So in view of that, I just um the question actually was, oh, um the, the question actually on that day was basically in relation to um any asking if there are any questions in relation to the fact that we've had all of these activities. Are there any questions? Because it's also an interesting thing that sometimes as believers we assume that um, everybody understands what what we are doing. like everybody understands what um, the essence of Lent, everybody understands um, the essence of um, um, Palm Sunday or even even the resurrection Sunday. so and truly that also opened up you know um, um, a, a time of discussion. Actually, we couldn't even answer all the questions on that day. I think we were just stuck on one question, and that one question was someone else asking, "Why do we even fast? Was it the fast? Was it the fast of um, Jesus when he was led uh, into the wilderness? Why did? Why do we fast? You know, before so only that even um, um, led to even more questions." And in view of that as well, it it has even it has even helped because now we are we've also scheduled like another um, meeting separate from just the Mondays, like a Saturday. So we are hoping to study even more and then come back to um, um, answer the other questions that came up from that as well. So yeah, so that's my own experience. So um, basically, the questions came out from things that we've always.
3: No, you know, don't year. That
0: you know, yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. Um, I know that in Nigeria, if you live in Nigeria, at least in so most parts of Nigeria, we're living in some kind of spiritual prosperity, as it were, right? Where you don't have to start from scratch, but still there is work to be done. There are depths to be dug in the hearts of people, like Chisom's experience highlighted. So what I want to stick away from this starting a conversation is the importance of asking questions and listening attentively, and not assuming that people understand, right? Or um, not feeling overwhelmed just by the person in front of you, but think with what this person has told me, what question can I ask them that will, that will perhaps change their, not necessarily change their views, not necessarily a job to do that, but they might be holding this big balloon that's like a bubble, you know, and they feel like this worldview is the thing, you know, and then what question can I ask that we just poke a hole in that and make them willing to consider? So, because of our time, um, I'm just going to run through the next part, right? Which is how do you stay in the conversation? So, the main context that we're trying to have this conversation is defending the faith, the reason for the hope that is in you, right? So this would mostly happen with non-believers. Even though, like Chisham's case, you would have situations where you need to ground believers more, um, but this would mostly happen with non-believers, where you need to defend the faith and defend it vigorously and maintain your hope. And especially for those of us who are in the West, God is definitely looking up to us to, to accept to be his channels to those who have never heard the gospel. So when you start a conversation about the gospel, you are going to hear all kinds of things, especially if you are like I said, in the West. But the way things are going in Nigeria, I'm sure you'll hear the same because um, social media, like they say, has made the world a global village. So ideas have spread very rapidly and you can see Nigerians advocating atheism on Twitter if you look closely. So um, when you attempt to defend your faith or to even talk about a faith topic after you've started a conversation, you're going to hear all kinds of things. And I summarise them into three main objections, right? And let me just go over them the first one is an intellectual obstacle right and that intellectual obstacle is presented as the as the conundrum in quotes of the advancement of science right the objection especially in the west but more so in our times is that in an intellectual society right in a society that is has become what it is by human impute and scientific endeavor religion is actually foolish right like like someone said in the 90s is the opium of the masses. We don't need it. Um, And you hear a lot of that here in the West, that even though we we used to be once Christians, but Christianity was a way of filling in the gaps, right? Of what we didn't know about creation. And so the advancement of science has given us a stable foundation for life. And if 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 you're like me and you preach a lot on the universities, this is the only thing the students are fed and the students don't even realize that they are being fed this right that there's no need for a god if we have science well the weakness of this argument is that science science by nature if we take the nature of science what is science right science is evidence-based conclusions right science is based on reason right It's, it's based on factual evidence physical evidence that hey, I take something, I investigate the thing, and I find an answer. What that means is that science, by its nature, cannot answer certain questions. Because if you don't have evidence, right, or physical evidence, as it were, to address those kind of questions, then science cannot help you. So the fundamental questions of life, right, such as what what is the origin of life? The best we have are theories. Even though in a lot of universities in the world today, those theories are being taught as fact, but the people who teach them do not emphasize the fact that they're theories, even though they have to be intellectually honest and call them theories. The reason Mm -hmm. that science does not know the origin of life is because there's nothing to research into, right? The best we can do is to find old rocks and old skeletal parts and date them and make educated guesses. But that fundamental question of human life Where did I come from? Science cannot answer that question. It's not that it needs to try. It cannot, right? The materials needed to answer the question are not available to physical life. The other question, which is why religion, as it were, has remained relevant in every culture, in every country, despite the advancement of science, is the second big question about life, right? Which is, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here, right? Because if, 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 if the atheistic worldview is true, then life is meaningless, right? If there is no God, it means there is no design, even though clearly in creation, creation has an order and an a design to it that points to a designer. But if you remove the role of that designer, um, then life is meaningless. Life is purposeless. And I'm going to touch on a moment on the pushback that often comes when you say that. But I would I just want to point out the three big questions of life that science cannot answer. What's the origin of life? Where did it all start? I mean, at first, they they were saying that the universe didn't start. you know it was self- existing. but that's but that's also a leap of faith, right? There's no evidence for that. And now the scientific consensus is, okay, there was a big bang. So it means that at some point in history, there was a first cause. What was that first cause? Science cannot answer that question. That first cause will have to reveal itself, right? Um, and then the second question is, why am I here? What's the purpose of your life? It, are you just here to be like Methuselah and Co.? You know, you came, you gave birth, and then you had a good job, you had a good family, and then you died and we forgot your name. Well, if we're to believe the scientists, that's all that there is to life. But you see, there is none of us that agrees that our life is only worth living, eating, sleeping making children and going back to the grave there is none of us that agrees that that's the case and then the final question of life is the destiny of like where are we headed is there an afterlife that's actually the, the one question that for sure science cannot answer because the only way to answer the question is to die and and learn if there is a soul and learn if there is a spirit um yeah and learn if there is something beyond here so the nature of science, its, its demand for material evidence means that even if science advances to its highest heights, there are certain fundamental questions that it cannot answer. Those questions cannot be researched by the human mind. They can only be revealed. So when you're preaching, right, to or you're sharing the gospel with someone who holds this orientation, the main goal of your preaching is to enable them see the finiteness of man, right? Because such philosophy often tends to elevate science and human intellect and wisdom as the ultimate. But your goal is to make them see that it doesn't make sense. So some of the questions I ask, for example, and these are not questions I generated. These are popular questions that, are, that, that people use is, do you believe that nothing created everything? That's a scientific impossibility, right? If something existed, it means it has a cause. But if there is no creator, it means we are saying that nothing created everything. Life doesn't tend towards order, right? Life tends towards chaos. If you put your room in order, even if you don't use it, it's not going to look as orderly as you left it after three months. The tendency of life, according to the law of entropy, is to disintegrate. However... If you leave your room disintegrated, after 30 years, it will not put itself together. The tendency of life is not towards order, but rather towards chaos. So how come there is order in life? So it's not possible that nothing created everything. So the moment you ask that question, you realize that most young people, the person you're talking to has not even thought about that, right? And then the second question, obviously, so that answers the question of the origin of life, right? The second question about the meaning of life is what is the meaning of life? The main pushback I get from this question or the main answer I get from this question is that the meaning of life is what you make it out to be. I create my own meaning, I create my own purpose. But then (laughs) that begs the question, is it still meaningful if it is you who created it? What happens after you die? So if it is your meaning, It means that it dies with you. And if it dies with you, is it really meaningful? You know? And then third question about destiny is what happens after death? You see, the honest answer to these three questions of life is we don't know. And and you as the Christian shouldn't even claim to have the answer, right? Of course, the Bible has its perspective on all these questions, just like every other religion has its own perspective. But when you're speaking to this kind of person, you're trying to bring them to the intellectual honesty because they're an intellectual, right? You're trying to bring them to the intellectual honesty that we don't know. (laughs) And the only way to know is to look beyond science and to begin to seek after God.
3: Right? So
0: that's the first obstacle you face. I had to rush through that, but um, I hope the points were clear enough. Do you have any thoughts on this? Any questions? Or is what I'm saying just limited to my context? Or is, it, do, you, is it not, do you not face this kind of um, question or obstacle or pushback? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I was just saying, uh, I talked in the chat, that this is a very interesting perspective. Uh, I'm glad I learned this today. Um, I just got to discover that, OK, I'm not in the West, so I'm not dealing with a lot of intellectual people. <laughs> Uh, Most of the people I'm dealing with have some form of religious or spiritual orientation for the other. And even when I meet people who do not have any uh, religious or spiritual orientation, they they do not have more like what how will I put it, they don't have like an intellectual disposition, but they do have some sort of uh, moral compass. So they are not mostly yeah. athe- they are not mostly atheistic, they are more like agnostic, you know, they are more like okay, how Yeah, I- that's the
0: second category I'm, I'm coming to. Okay. So that's maybe, the let me go category we're, we're getting to. <laughs> yeah. This first category is for the intellectuals. Okay. So this is the first obstacle you face. The second obstacle you face is the moral obstacle, like Sammy was trying to hint us at. And the moral obstacle is the obstacle that's posed by the agnostic. I mean, the atheists, when they are being dishonest, they try to pose this um, obstacle. And you probably know what it it goes, right? It says that if God is good and loving, like you claim he is, right? You say he's all good, he's all loving, he's all powerful. Why is there evil and suffering? And now this question can be asked by anybody on the spectrum, right? It can be asked by an atheist, like I said, if they are being intellectually dishonest, because... In an atheist world, God does not exist. And what that means is that there's no good or evil, actually. Even though they they are never able to accept that second part because then it makes them look like a tyrant. But moral values have no compass, right? Have no foundation if there's no moral lawgiver, right? If there is no ultimate moral source. So the atheist is easily dismissed from this question. But the people... Um that have a real problem with this are the agnostics, right? People who believe that there is a God. People like Job, you know, at some point Job became an agnostic. That's how to put him. He didn't lose his faith in God. He just lost his faith in what he thought was the character of God. You know, because he was sure that he didn't deserve what he was going through. And so most people say, okay, well, there might be a God, yes, but what I see in life contradicts what any faith system tells me about God. If God is all-good, all-loving, all-powerful, why is there evil and suffering? And of course, like you and I know, this question can also be asked by Christians as well. In fact, it's often asked by Christians. Why did X happen? Right? Why did this person die? Um, and all of those questions that we have about tragedy and suffering. Um, and so why is there so much injustice in the world? Now. There are many Christian ways you can answer this question, but I'm going to attack it from the non-Christian perspective because there is a way that you can relate to somebody who doesn't buy into Christian values first before you go into the Christian perspective. Like I mentioned before, that philosophically this question is problematic, right? Because it assumes that love and justice is a good thing, right? It assumes that these moral virtues, exist and the only way that moral virtues exist and are binding is that there is a moral lawgiver if you tell me that this thing is bad hitler was bad and people are supposed to be good what does good mean right because if good is what you define it to be then i can disagree with you right i can say oh I have a different definition of good. And so if there's no basis for which we can define what good is, then it's not really good. But you're, you're expecting me to know what you mean when you say that this thing is good, this thing is beautiful, this thing is ugly. Anything that is moral, this thing is unjust. Anything that's moral by nature, you're expecting me to have a certain compass, right? By which I understand what you're talking about. And so even people that have strayed far away from God, have a compass. That is what Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 tells us. The Bible says that he has made all things beautiful in his time. He has set eternity in your hearts. There is, there, is there is an instinct for God to be able to discern God, to be able to discern morality that every creature has. right? And so when you're speaking to someone who agrees, Right, that there are moral virtues and there's something called good and good should be good, right? Should be objectively good. And there's something called evil and evil should be objectively evil. What you're trying to arrive at, what you should try to arrive at as a preacher is to show them that there is a tension in creation between love and justice, right? Because when I, when I meet people like this, what I try to show them very clearly is that first of all, you have a moral compass right and then i try to help them narrow down on this your moral compass what are the two most important virtues that a god should have i ask questions like and this has been fruitful also I ask questions like if god existed what do you think would be his two main moral virtues what would you want his two main moral virtues to have and you see to be whatever question that whatever answer that people give to you the answers always converge around love and justice so love has synonyms like kindness, gentle, patient, lovely, but that's all love, right? And um, justice, righteousness, all those synonyms. Those Everybody recognizes those two fundamental values, love and justice. But they, what you want to present to them, to the person who presents the moral dilemma, is that there is a tension between those two. And I think a very good example that I always use that I heard from Apostle Gideon was, is, is to simply ask a question like this, right? Like, hey, um, um, between love and justice, which one do you prefer, for example? And I, and I found it very fruitful to ask this question. Do you prefer love or do you prefer justice? Ideally, people will say, no, I prefer both. But the correct answer to the question, or at least the reasonable answer to the question is, no, you prefer the one that you're on the side of. So if somebody offends you, you probably want justice, right? If you wake up tomorrow and you see that GT Bank wiped your account and there's nothing left in it, can I assure you that you're going to want justice? However, if you are the offender, you're going to want mercy or love or whatever synonym that goes with it. So it's important that you present attention that God is good right he's both love and justice and if god were to exercise absolute justice none of us would exist right yet he cannot overlook justice because why this is he so important is that if you don't present this tension to to people it will be difficult to understand the cross right why is it that god had to endure the, the highest an ultimate form of evil and suffering on the cross. You know that the death of Jesus was the height of all tragedies. Now think of any tragedy that can happen to you or to a human being. He was 33 years old. He died young. <laughs> you know, that's a tragedy. He was betrayed by his friend, right? That's a tragedy. He died in front of his mother, stark naked. That's a tragedy. It's a, a, a tragedy. He died in the most cruel way anybody can die. The Roman soldiers invented crucifixion precisely because it was the worst way to kill a person. That was how he died. He, he, he died unjustly. That's what Peter is going to say further that time. He died unjustly. His death was wrongful. He endured a wrong trial. You know the things that, that gets you agitated? You know, you heard that somebody lost an election and the election is stolen. That's what happened to Jesus in his trial. So on the cross, we see the convergence of the highest evil and suffering. Why was that necessary? Because in the same place where all of the evil and suffering and punishment of the world converged, that's the same place that the justice of God could be satisfied so that the love of God can be revealed right? And I always tell people that I have different reasons I give, right? One of the reasons I believe Christianity to be true, and one of the reasons I believe Christianity to be true is that Christianity is the only faith system that presents grace. This this meeting of love and justice is called grace, right? It is the only way that a sinner can be saved. The demand of justice, like we've always said in this Bible study, is absolute, right? You you know, some people say, why does God send people to hell eternally for a sin that they committed only when they were alive for 30 years? But you see, it doesn't really work like that with justice. If you kill somebody, it took you two seconds to kill the person, but the punishment cannot be two seconds punishment, right? If, if you were a good person from the day of your birth to year 60, and then year 61, you committed a crime, the justice... Justice does not decide that because you are good from one to 60, then you'll be let go. And you find that every other religious system relies on merit and nobody stands in the face of the absolute justice of God. And so it's necessary that you present that there is a tension between love and justice and whatever worldview your, your hearer holds, whatever faith system your hearer holds, Needs to have a way of reconciling that tension. Okay, so that's the moral dilemma. What do you think? By the way, just give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. How are you feeling, honestly? <laughs> because I might need to borrow five more minutes, um, or ten more minutes of our time today. Okay, Udi says amazing.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. So, what do you think? Any thoughts or comments? Do you want to pick up what you're saying, Sam?
2: Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm um, sorry. So, back to... Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out what you pointed out. Um, but um, one very, will I say humbling experience. In fact, it is one of the reasons why this is my own personal take on <clears throat> reaching out to people with the gospel. I now totally understand why the Lord Jesus said, wait to go in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit come. But you cannot just carry yourself and go and be doing this thing anyhow. Because there's a diversity of people Perspectives and mm. questions and the And I, I have learned a lot from the framework you've given. In fact, I, I think with what you've shared today, I believe my efforts henceforth will have more, like, more reach and, and the thing. But I am just, what I'm just uh, wanted to share is that I have learned to lean heavily on the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. I have learned to lean heavily, like uh, the church where I, I, I volunteer and serve with here in the UAE, they are very, very heavy and big on evangelism. In fact, I did share, you know, what happened on Easter, is resurrection morning in the future. They are very big. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of place where, if you, if you are not reaching out, you will feel like you are an outcast because everybody is aggressive with evangelism. But well, my experience, what I've learned is, I have just learned heavily to this, um, the gifts of the Spirit, to lean on the Holy Spirit, especially when it comes to discernment, you know, especially when it comes to... Um, um, word of knowledge, but not the way we have experienced it in Africa, in Nigeria. It's not that uh, uh, your food number and the color of your village kids. But I found out that these mm-hmm. gifts of the spirit or the manifestation of the spirit are very, very instrumental to reaching out to the lost. Uh, uh, personally, I've, I have moments, I, I lean on, sometimes I lean on some of the frameworks we've been taught more or less of to kickstart the conversation, you know, and stuff. But I found out that the impact is done with the leading of the spirit. Uh, That's why when I shared my own, when I shared the uh, example earlier, the experience earlier, asking the lady about somehow, somehow, you know, looking back on it, I can't really connect how that question about fear Came into the conversation, but it was just what the Holy Spirit did. But you know, the beautiful thing I learned from what you've said is that, and it's very, very encouraging, is that the the, the just like the Bible of the Kingdom of God is like a sowing of seeds. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we are we are blessed and privileged to be the ones who are reaping something that has been labored over time, and sometimes yeah. we are. Um, but okay, let me ask this question, just so that it doesn't rush much time. So my question is this, is connecting to what Chiefs uh, of earlier, we've got a lot of ambiguity amongst believers, That we've got a lot of people who are shrouding our, under that uh, um, preconceived notion of they, they should know or they know. And in the course of the Bible study group, I've I have led here. We've had a case of somebody who has been coming to church here in the UAE before I came. In fact, she has been here for a long time. And one of the days I was leading Bible study, that's when I found out that she had not even accepted the Lord Jesus. And that was how it happened in that Bible study that she was led.
0: <laughs> okay. Looks like we lost Sammy. But yeah, I think that contribution you made was very necessary. I think that's why we started how we started, right? We said, sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. Um, It's necessary. We cannot overemphasize the role of the supernatural. And perhaps when we do a second part to this, we'll focus on practicing the gifts of the Spirit, right? In the atmosphere of the Spirit, because it's necessary for evangelism. However, what we're dealing with tonight is giving a reason for the hope that is in you right Um, giving a reason for the hope that is in you sami could you maybe type your question on the chat so that we can take it together afterwards thank you yeah giving a reason for the hope that is in you a time will come when you need to give a reason and more and more god will place us in that context where we need to give a reason and it's necessary for us to know that for you not to be thrown off balance when a moral question of faith is raised right you can have an answer so the final obstacle, so usually my preaching, it's almost like a it's almost like a like a progression. Because when you've been able to pull down the scientific argument, you know, part of our calling in Christianity is to pull down arguments, right? That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us. Cast down imaginations, pull down arguments. Of course, not aggressively, right? Peter says that you should do it with gentleness, with meekness and fear. Um, But when you've been able to pull down the scientific argument, the moral argument, the final obstacle I find, right, which some people attempt to make this an intellectual obstacle, but it's only out of ignorance that you make it an intellectual obstacle, because in reality, it's not. It's an experiential obstacle. And that obstacle is this. How do we know that Christianity is the one true way? Right. Like Samuel was saying. Uh, there are a diversity of people, there are a diversity of philosophies, there are a diversity of approaches, right? So are you saying that if I don't believe what you're saying, then I'm condemned in essence? Because even though you don't say it, that's what you're saying. The reason why I said some people try to make this a an intellectual problem is that when I talk to people, one of the things they say, to, they say many things, right? One of the things is that, oh, all religions are the same. And that's not a serious objection because... That's a very shallow statement. All religions are not the same, right? Every religion is different. I mean, that's a truth statement by itself. Um, but more so, if you investigate the core faith systems, each of them claims an exclusivity so that if Christianity is true, then Islam cannot be true, right? Then Hinduism cannot be true. Then Buddhism cannot be true. And the same goes for Islam as well. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, either that statement is true and Jesus is the only way, right? Or it is not true. So the statement cannot be both true and false at the same time. So the statement contradicts the teaching of Islam, contradicts the teaching of Buddhism, contradicts the teaching of traditional religion, contradicts everything else. And it's not only Christianity that's like this, right? Islam tells you, that the way to God, for example, is that at the end of your life, your good works will be weighed against your bad works, right? Because I preach to them a lot also. And whichever one has, I ask them, what's your hope? What's your hope after life? And they say, when I die, my good works will be weighed against my bad works. And whichever one is more, that will determine my eternal it. That's a hopeless gospel, right? And that's a direct contradiction to the message of the gospel which is that it's only by grace that any of us will be saved. There's no amount of good works that can cover up for one bad work in the face of the absolute justice of God. The one bad work of which is not even just one, but even the one bad work will find you out. In the face of the absolute justice of God, none of us can face God on the basis of our own merit. So even on the grounds of how we hope to access God, where we're very divergent, right? And we're very different. So it's important for us not to be drawn into any kind of syncretism where people try to mix um, and sync things together. So that's why I said it's not really an intellectual problem. If you investigate the faith systems, you realize that they're talking about two different things entirely. And if one is true, then the other one is false, okay? The other thing people tend to say is that, okay, but it's not fair, right? it cannot be that God made only one way. Are you saying that if if somebody is a good person in quotes and person is a good life and a person doesn't know Christ, that then when the person dies because they didn't know Christ, despite all the good things they did, they have no eternity with God. Well none of us is in a position to choose to God how many for God, how many ways, right to so salvation are plausible or possible, right? God decided one, and what that means is that God knows that even if there were 10 ways, only those who will be saved will eventually be saved. And also, there is no self-revelation of God, because, you know, when we are dealing with questions of the origin of life, the meaning of life, the destiny of life, there's no scientific book that can help us. We need to go to the self-revelation of God. How has God revealed himself through history? There's no self-revelation of God that indicates that there are many ways to God. Even though popular pastors in America, in quotes, preach that, but there's no self-revelation of God that backs it up. The self-revelation of God that is captured on pages of scripture is that God has found a way. It was difficult, but he found a way, one way, and that way is through his son. Anyway, the core of this question is that this question is not an intellectual question. This question is an experiential question. It's a question that you need to find your own answer to. I need to find my own answer to why do you believe that Christianity is the one true faith in the face of all the alternatives that exist? Right? Can you think about that for a moment? Why do you believe that Christianity is the one true faith? Because this is the final obstacle for some people I've met. Right? So I have three that I wrote down here, which I'll share with us quickly because of our time. The first I've already hinted at it, right? Which is that, Christianity is the only faith system that satisfies the tension between love and justice. Right? Every other faith system either tilts towards too much love without justice, you know, oh everybody will be saved at the end, you know. So what happens to justice, right? Or tilts towards justice. Oh no no no. It's only based on your good works <laughs> that you will be saved. Then that's who's going to make it on those on those terms. Christianity is the only one that adequately satisfies the tension between love and justice. And so, um, because it satisfies that tension, it is the only faith system that guarantees and assures you of eternal life. You know, one of the things I said, or one of the things I used in the conversation I had with those young people I was talking to that really hit home was when I said to them, if you accept God into your heart, what do you have to lose? The answer to that question is nothing. But if you don't, you potentially start to lose everything because you and I don't know if there is an afterlife, right? We don't know what lies after death. And so we can use the analogy of jumping out of an airplane without the parachute. If you are going to jump out of an airplane, would you rather have the parachute or not? You don't know how high in the air it is. You don't even know if it's just on the ground. But what do you start to lose by having the parachute? if you're going to jump out of the airplane anyway. Christianity is only a faith system that reasonably assures you of eternal life. Of course, the way you have eternal life is not by reason, right? Because if I reasoned you into it, then you can be reasoned out of it. But, But God invites us to reason with him still because the reason factor is necessary for us to come into life, even though it's not the core thing. Every other faith system is hit and miss. And so to not trust Jesus is to jump out of that plane without a parachute. Okay. The second reason why I believe Christianity is true is because of the resurrection and the newness of life. Now, some faiths have some kind of story of a coming back to life or a resurrection. But you see, the kind of evidence that we have for the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament and in historical documents is unprecedented. Think about it. What is it that made fearful, cowardly fishermen right, that could not stand the crucifixion of their lord and master? <laughs> what is it that happened to them 40 days after that event right, that turned them into bold and fearless lions that turned an entire empire upside down? It, it, it could not just have been an agenda. This, it, this is not just a story. This is a historical record that men who were uneducated fishermen, fearful, without hope, everybody whose master was killed eventually scattered, right? That's what Gamaliel said to the council of the Pharisees when he was trying to convince them not to crucify Jesus, that if this thing is not of God, when this man dies, it will scatter. But in Jesus' case, when he died, Christianity found its life. The only answer to that question is the resurrection. And in case you say, okay, these are unlearned fishermen, there was an intellectual, a highest of the highest intellectuals called Paul. He, 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 he was a self-styled and self-proclaimed persecutor of the way. This is not the kind of man that you can wishwash with a conspiracy theory. What happened to this man that the one who persecuted the church stoned Christians to death? Fell in love with Jesus so much that he was the most persecuted apostle of all. At the end, he would rather die and suffer beatings than to deny that he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. When I look at those stories historically, and when I look at the the, the newness of life that the New Testament promises, that when one is in Christ, he's a new creature. That there's a new possibility that is open to you on account of your inclusion in Christ. That even though you see yourself as weak, as unable, that on account of your receiving Christ, at no cost to you at least financially or whatever, that a newness of life is available to you. That you can be unrecognizable from who people know you to be, full of power, full of grace. The only only thing that makes that possible the resurrection and that's why i believe christianity is true right because when jesus died he multiplied himself and and the fact that christianity survived the fact that christianity is a thing is proof that he did not stay dead and so that is the most difficult problem of man the problem of death nothing we know has been able to solve it but in christ there is a resurrection. That resurrection is not just a future hope, which it is, but it's a present reality that you and I can walk in a new life when we receive Jesus. That's part of why I believe Christianity is true. Right. And finally, no other faith system presents God as father. Jesus was the first one that came on the scene and said, when you pray, say our father. Christianity is the only one that, that reveals to us why we were made like this. Why did we have... Why do we have emotions? Why can we feel more strongly than any other animal being? Why can we think more deeply and more broadly and more widely than any other animal being? It's because we were created in the image of a creator. The entire foundation of human rights in the West of that, that the West prides themselves with today was founded on the Christian idea that we were made in the image of God. So Christianity is the only faith system. That, that introduces us to the possibility of knowing God as Father, our Father, not a distant God, but my Father. You see, to not know God is to never find the reason you were created. The only way to find the reason you were created is to know God, not to know him in your head, not to know him by creed, not to know him by doctrine, but to know him in your heart in your organic living experience these are my top three reasons why i believe percentage is true and this is why i have confidence when i present the gospel right i present it with so much confidence because i know what i am presenting i know and i'm able to defend it to summarize when you go to preach you have the record of the cross the place where the love and justice of God meet and grace is released, you have that when you go to preach. When you go to preach, you have the resurrection, which is the reality of the living Christ available to you to bring you power. Yes, the power that Sammy spoke about earlier is because of the resurrection. You have that. And you also have the, the blessing of an intimate relationship with the Father. You have those three things. And we're going to stop at verse 17 because that's all we read to. So Peter says in verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evil to us. So this enterprise does not always end well. I must tell you, right? We've seen in this letter that Christianity is offensive because it dethrones me from the throne and places God on the throne of my life and asks me to make a choice. So it's not always sweet. It's not always... It doesn't always get... All smiles because you're not selling ice cream, right? (laughs) Asking people to choose, to choose. He said, so sometimes they might defame you. He said, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good and for evil. So now I hope you can see why godly character is indispensable to. Your life as a Christian, that your life is the only witness that God has, that all of these things we are saying make no meaning if it is not reflected through your life. That in fact, you cannot even reasonably defend the gospel if you're not grounded in the hope that is in the gospel, right? If your life, your very life, it does not effuse with the hope that's in the gospel, it's a mistake for anybody to preach to you that Christianity is a license to ungodly living it's a mistake it is a wrong doctrine it's an antichrist doctrine it's not in god's design it's not of god god's desire is that his glory will be revealed through us yes and that's why he makes himself available to us the king of the universe makes himself available to you and i to partner with us to empower us to strengthen us All for his glory, all for his glory. And my prayer for us tonight is that we'll be encouraged, that there is a hope in us that is worth talking about, that is worth sharing, that we'll begin to find the opportunities to ask questions, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and to minister from from the throne of God. That God will lead us to the hungry, to the prepared, to those whose hearts are ready for the gospel that there'll be a great harvest, that it doesn't matter how difficult our families or our cities or the context in which he has placed us in, that the walls will begin to crack, that even in our workplaces, in places where it is doubly difficult to to take a stand for the Lord, that in those places that opportunities will begin to open up, cracks will begin to emerge in the system that will create a, a platform for those who have not heard to hear the gospel gospel, and that the glory of God will be revealed in us. That's my prayer for you, that the glory of God will shine through, to shine through your hands, it will shine through your life, it will shine through your works and your words in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, thank you so much for staying with us. Let me put you back on the seats for the first final one minute or so, but we leave.